Last year, we spent an entire year going through Matthew. This year, we're just picking apart uh, this next month, just four major big themes that we're rediscussing in order to move on into what we're going to be talking about uh, this spring. So Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to pray one more time. Lord, thank you that you're with us, that you love us, that you care for us, that you've changed us, and you've made us whole in you. May we live in that, lean into it. Rejoice in it, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, many of you know, some of you don't. I have uh, four children. They're somewhat close in age, close enough to like a lot of the same things, but also far enough now where there's a disparity in things that they enjoy to do. So 10, almost 11-year-olds don't enjoy doing what five, almost six-year-olds always enjoy doing, Correct. Right, right, yeah. And on my uh, day off, which is typically on Fridays, if my schedule works out that way, uh, the kids, one of them in particular, uh, will always come to me with a request. Now, it's rarely the oldest. It's most likely and typically my youngest. And it's really intriguing because the request that my youngest comes with typically has nothing to do with what she likes or wants. She'll come to me and say, Daddy, can we get the new Batman game? Like, the Batman game? You like Ninjago, kid. Like, Daddy, can we get some coffee? Like, coffee? No, you don't even touch that stuff. And so what I've realized doing, because I'm a very uh, intuitive parent... (laughs) as you all are, uh, I've realized that my oldest likes to implant ideas. You would never do that to your siblings, right, hon? Your dad's right there, and you are in church, so if you're lying, there's a special place for you. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'm going to shame her. So, So they have these ideas implanted in their heads for things they don't even care about, desire, or want. Now, if you've parented more than one child for any time or you've hung around with kids, you understand that this happens. There's a pretty innocent description, what I just gave you, of what can happen when there's an influence in our life that is trying to get us to do something that maybe we don't care about, maybe we don't even realize what they're doing to us, but they want to implant an idea into our minds and into our heads. Now, as innocent as that is, and just sort of switching gears from a lighthearted moment, there's something very, very real and serious that we get to have to need to talk about here this morning. And this idea that there is an evil behind the evil in our culture and in our society that works in a very, very similar manner, that wants to implant, give, feed these ideas and thoughts to convince, to coerce, to maybe even thrust an identity upon you in order to bring chaos, division, and destruction into your personal world, into your small little community world, and into the much larger world as a whole. 
And what happens is, in our culture, we've been lulled to sleep a little bit by this idea of what's going on. I want to move into this morning and talk about, as we discussed last week, we, we talked about kingdom vocation and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and being in his kingdom and that being our primary vocation while still understanding, yes, we are in his kingdom. There's another kingdom at large that exists. In fact, one of the ways to read scripture is to see it as the story of two kingdoms, one in which we desire things and we went our way and the other in which God rules and reigns and he invites us into. And within this world of kingdoms, there's a realm that most of us don't discuss, talk, or think about, and it's that of the unseen realm, the influence of the enemy, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of the world at large. This spiritual realm, and when I talk about spiritual realm this morning, we're not going to talk about gifts and tongues and healings and all that stuff. We dealt with that way back in 1 Corinthians. But this world that our eyes seem to be very dulled to or close to that does exist. And just so you know, my position on where I stand this morning, I'm kind of like Michael Scott from The Office. I'm not superstitious. I'm a little stitious. <laughs> right? I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious here this morning. I think there's been a veneer across Western culture with a subtle deception that wants to cause us to ignore the reality of what's going on behind the surface, and we've been lulled to sleep as a church. Anybody familiar with the screw tape letters written by C.S. Lewis? Oh, fantastic. I'd call it a wonderful little book, but it's terrifying. <laughs> When you read it, you think, how did he have that much insight? In the screw tape letters, there are these two equal and opposite mistakes that Lewis points out that we fall into when it comes to the devil. We tend to either be superstitious, meaning overbelief, and he uses a fun made up word, substitious, meaning underbelief. Superstitious, those kinds of people have this unhealthy fear of the devil. You might know them. You maybe have been around them. They're the ones that are driving to Bible study, and all of a sudden, pump, 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 pump. Their tire goes flat, and they call you up, and they say, I guess the devil didn't want me there. And I'm like, the devil's not omniscient, and I'm sure he's got bigger fish to fry than you trying to get to Bible study, okay? Superstitious people are those people who think the devil's behind every sickness. The devil's behind every bump in the road. The devil is behind every problem that you run into. And I'm convinced that we're pretty darn good at making problems for ourselves in this sinful, fallen world. Not every attack is an attack by the devil. Not everything going on in your life is because the devil wants you poor, broke, and dumb. No, 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 that's not his main role, his main influence, what he's up to in the world today. And yet, we do a pretty good job on our own of destroying relationships, causing division and problems. And what we need to understand as we talk about the devil this morning, which some of you are like, oh gosh, I invited somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But I'm going to challenge you a little bit this morning on that. What we need to understand is that the devil's main tactic is not throwing nails in the road to give you a flat tire, 
but it's tactics of misinformation, lies, and challenging, listen to this, challenging the goodness of God. That's going to be his main tactic this morning as we look at this. We typically try to shrink it down to our personal financial problems, job loss, sickness, possessions, all of those other things that he's up to and involved in. But in the scriptures, rarely do you see a devil behind many of the things that Jesus is doing. For example, when Jairus' daughter is sick, he doesn't go cast out some devil, right? When the woman had the issue of blood, he doesn't think it's a devil behind that, but she needs healing. There's just sickness in this world. There's problems in this world. Lazarus' death wasn't the devil's doing, but truly it was an opportunity for God to be glorified and honored. So if you're superstitious this morning, Not everything is the devil. Now, in our culture, where we tend to lean towards is those that are substitious. The people are like, there's no devil. There's no guy, you know, in red tights and a cape and a pitchfork with horns on. And I'm like, I agree with you in those terms. Those caricatures are very off of who the devil actually is. Many people laugh at the idea that there's some kind of devil or evil in the world that needs to be stomped out and that we could actually even begin to process that that could be a reality, that we've now got the scientific process. And because of scientific process, we rule out all kinds of spirituality in the world. Therefore, though, these people that want to do that, and if you're one of them, you have this very hard time because you have to come up with some sort of origin of evil in this world. You're fighting against it. You're educating against it. And you're trying to find solutions against it. Typically in the terms of educating, legislating, making things happen. Those are secular solutions in how we get rid of evil. They're in the news all the time, aren't they? How are we going to eradicate murder, poverty, continued racism? Let's educate our way out of this. Let's legislate our way out of this. And yet we don't get anywhere at all. And so when we take steps towards thinking there's not an evil behind the evil, and if you're one of those people, you're very narrow-minded, you secularist, always telling us how narrow-minded we are. A little jab there for fun. Your solutions aren't working, and I want to talk to you guys about what the scriptures say about this devil and why you need to be on guard. If you want to know who the devil is, we can look at Matthew chapter 4. I'm just going to read this to you. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, the angels came and ministered to 
this morning. If you believe in Jesus and you don't believe in the devil, you're wrong. Just say that straight up. If you say, there is a Jesus and he's my savior and he's my hero, but I can't get behind this idea that a devil actually exists, you have to do away with this very chapter, let alone much of other scripture that is written about this figure, the devil. So you can't simply dismiss the devil. He came and appeared to Jesus, apparently having the ability to communicate. It's not just some inner feeling or inner sense that attacks Jesus, but there is a real devil that comes to Jesus, and he's not dumb. He's smart, intuitive. He knows scripture. Hey, I I know what it says in the Psalms about you, Jesus. Why don't you put God to the test on these things? And in this instance, what we see the devil doing, and I believe throughout all of scripture over and over again, is questioning God, implanting ideas with a misinformation campaign as the main tactic of how he's going to come at you. This text tells us there is a devil. Now, if you just do a quick Bible survey of who is the devil, let me just give you a quick breakdown. First of all, the word Satan, when you actually see it in Hebrew, you see the word ha-satan. It's much like the word Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a title, not a person. Many people held that title, didn't they? What we know about in the scriptures is that this Satan, he is a created being by God who rebelled against God, right? Very powerful, influential, Others fell as well. And when we look at who he is, the Bible gives him a bunch of names that are terrifying. Let me just spit these out. In 1 Peter, he's known as a roaring lion, seeking to devour others. In Revelation, he's the great red dragon. We see in Matthew, he is the strong man. In 2 Corinthians, he is the god of this world, the prince of the power of air, Beelzebub, The adversary, the dragon, the enemy, the serpent, the tempter, the tester, the wicked one. In scripture, we see that his main job is to be the accuser. The accuser. The one who's constantly making accusations against us. The Satan seemed to have been a part of Yahweh's divine counsel. You can look at 1 Chronicles 21.1, Job 1-2, through Zechariah 3.1, before he rebels against God. And he falls, and then his whole ideas and plans is to create a deception that ruins the goodness of God, that really begins to try to unravel all of Genesis 1-6. through God said it was good. God said it was good. God said it was good. And now the enemy is constantly wanting to say, but is it good? Is it good? Is it good? In Jewish history, he's understood by many names. They also knew him to be this quasi-personal source of evil, standing behind both human wickedness and large scales of injustice. Not just some personal force that comes into your life, but is actually trying to influence governments and societies. Having there the seat of synagogue that is talked about in one of the churches of Revelation. That's how they understood him. And Jesus warns his followers of this enemy's deceit, of what he tries to do, 
and how he wants to uproot your life and create all sorts of problems for us. Satan has power over principalities. We read that in Ephesians this morning, chapter 6, John 12, 31. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, the ruler of this world be cast out. John 14, 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when you put all this together, which is just really a very quick survey, and if you're like, Brett, this kind of sparks my interest, you can go online. We talked about the devil for five weeks in our first Peter series. You're getting just sort of a quick overarching recap here this morning, but it's very, very important for us. What we see is this enemy, he has an agenda. He wants to murder, he wants to destroy, and he wants to kill. Not only that, he has a tactic, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time here this morning. Because I want us to be aware of the tactic of the enemy in order for us to know how, how do we combat this? How do we become a people of resistance? How do we become a people who, what we looked at last week before we were here, we took N.T. Wright and those seven pillars that every human knows intrinsically within their bones, yet because of the fall, we've rebelled against that. We distort beauty. We pervert justice. We break friendship. We seek spirituality on our own terms. And we can go down the list that N.T. Wright gave, and we go, we want and cry for purity and wholeness in these seven pillars, but we've forgotten or lost how. And in Jesus, he's restoring that in each and every one of us. But there is a real enemy at work in our world today who is perverting the ways that God had intended for humanity to live. And he is a problem behind all of the problems that we do see in culture today. And darn it, church, we seem to just be so, like, lackadaisical, eyes closed, and not even realize how often we participate in his ways. Just because I feel like ranting and going off in the most smallest of moments, if the devil exists to slander, when we slander, who are we participating in and what are we participating in? The works of the devil. Do you know how easy it is to slander somebody? I see it every day on Facebook. <laughs> I hear it all the time studying in a coffee shop. Somebody just da 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 da. And we're over here like, hey, here's all these big sexual sins you shouldn't participate in as we're gossiping and ripping people apart. And Jesus says, that is the works of the devil. <laughs> when we use our words to cause division and slander, we have such a way of justifying certain actions and minimizing others. And when we do that, we participate in his system and in the tearing down of one another. And I want us to be aware of this this morning. I'm just so broken and tired of the ways the devil uses deception to grab hold of our lives. He has a tactic. Here, let me just unpack it for you. Three things, three ways the devil's always going to come at you this morning. The world. The world. When we talk about the world in scripture, I'm not just talking about the big round or if you're one of those people, flat things floating in the sky. <laughs> Silly. <laughs> All right. So when we talk about the world, the world refers to a system of thinking whereby the material world becomes the ultimate thing in your life. 
Let me read Ephesians 2 to you. In which you once walked, verse 2 through 3, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So it's talking about Satan and who people walked after. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the spirit of Satan is at work in those who oppose God. Among you whom he will all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, whereby nature of children of wrath, like the rest, wrath, like the rest of mankind. What this passage talks about is there is an evil one behind the evil who is influencing the evil that's going on in our culture and society. However, we also participate in that through our desires. And that word desire literally means over desires for things. It's good to have a desire for your spouse. It's good to have a desire to provide for your family. It's good to have a healthy, in God's right, confines, sexual desire, all right? I need you to hear that this morning. Not prudish when it comes to those things. It's good to have these desires. But when the desires are our ultimate desires, everything in our lives begin to unravel. When they become the things that we live for, for example, there is nothing wrong with eating. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Nothing wrong at all. But to live to eat is worldliness. And there are people who live to eat. There's nothing wrong, or not eat, by the way, and we'll get into that. There's nothing wrong with sexuality. But to live for sex, uh uh-oh, it's going to unravel our lives when we have this over-desire. It's worldliness. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look good. I had a pastor who used to say, if the barn needs painting, paint it. (laughs) Right? Like, my wife tells me every day, you need to put more lotion on your face. It's going to flake off. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) All right, whatever. Oh, my goodness. There's nothing wrong with money. But to live for money... And we're going to pervert, invert power structures. We're going to trample on and hurt other people. It's going to be a problem. It's the way that the culture and society has actually fixated itself. It's opposed to the Lord. And there are these ungodly trends that are happening and have happened since the beginning of time towards this world, meaning materialism, naturalism, desire for instant gratification, and more. And Jesus says, watch out for this. He's giving this word. And he warns that this word, it can be definitely choked out. But we need to understand over-desire is not healthy. And so what people have done, even with God, is they said, if God can give me the good life, I'll take him. But if I can get the good life outside of God, because the good life is really what I want, then I'm going to participate in the good life in that way. And we'll define that in a little bit. There's this over-desire that people have for the world, and that is one of the ways the enemy is going to come to you. He's going to take good things and make them ultimate things. He's going to want you to persist and follow in them and make them your life's goal, and you'll be blind to everything else. Number two, the lust of the flesh or eyes. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away 
along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lust, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. I think I play this one on repeat, but in Genesis 3, Eve in the garden, having heard from the serpent that says, God didn't really say that. He's withholding good from you. She sees that the fruit is good. Her eyes are drawn to it. She then takes of it and gives to her husband. If you listen to the Bible Project, this is one of those themes in Scripture that plays over and over and over again. How so? Well, Abraham and Sarah were promised a child. God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're blessed to be a blessing. Go into an unknown land and wander till I do this for you. Okay, God, that sounds great. Year after year after year after year, they are childless. And then the scriptures say they see Hagar, who is Abraham's, one of his servants, or Sarah's, excuse me, handmaidens, says they see her, and in the same language is used, they take her. And what does he try to do? He tries to get God's goodness and God's promise outside of God's way. This plays circular over and over again, and it's this cycle that humanity tends to go to. They know what goodness is. They desire goodness, but they want it on their own terms. And the lust of the eyes is one of the ways in which we go, I see that, and I think it's going to satisfy me. I see that, and I think I'm finally going to be filled up. And much like cotton candy, we grab it, we taste it, and I'm like, Disgusting. Gosh, I hate that stuff. Look, that is what so much of it is like. And all of this is happening through a deception. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to John 8. We're going to read this last set of scripture. In verse 39, it says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. So Jesus and the Pharisees, they're having a casual conversation. It's pretty cool. And Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. He's talking to Pharisees. And he says, you seek, you seek to kill me. Now I need you to, if you want to underline, highlight, just make a mental note of what he's telling what they're doing. You seek to kill me, a man who has told you truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. What? We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I, came from the, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Jesus just says, you are sons of the devil. Very, very poignant, right in their face. And your will is to do your father's desires. What was their will, Jesus said earlier? You want to kill me. You want to murder me. You want to get rid of me. Your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from when? The beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character. So when he just talks, that's who he is. He is a liar. His nature, his innate being is one who is deceptive and tells lies to other people. 
And you are like him, is what he says. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reasons, the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Deception is how he wants to come at you. Tim Keller put forth this idea, and he really calls it the commercial effect. And if you grew up in my generation, sorry, like teens, tweens, and everybody else, I guess I'm older now, we actually had these things called commercials. You call them ads, and they appear on your phone. <laughs> we had a minute and a half break to like get to the bathroom, make your popcorn, and get back in, because there was no rewinding Family Matters and seeing what Urkel did next. <laughs> just wasn't going to happen. You'd have to wait till reruns on TBS at 2.30 on Thursday afternoons. Okay. Now, what it said is, you know, by the time you're 25, you've seen umpteen million commercials, haven't you? I mean, we've just seen commercial after commercial after commercials. And commercials are there to sell us something, to tell us something. And when you look at these commercials, you begin to take note of the people in these commercials. And one of the things you tell yourself as a teen, as a kid is, I don't look like that. I don't act like that. I don't laugh like that. I don't have friends like that. And because we've seen this idea that to be cool, to be popular, to be in the end, we've got this information coming our way from commercials telling us this is what it takes to be accepted in society. This is how you ought to look. This is how you have to dress. I didn't get the memo, right? This, this is what you need to be to be somebody of importance. And all of a sudden, we can lay awake at night and begin to tell ourselves all sorts of nasty things. Oh, I'm nothing. Who can love me? Who could care for me? Will I ever find somebody? Will I ever be desired or wanted or loved? Will I ever have enough in this life to make a difference or matter if I'm not rich like the guy that drives that or the gal that has that or if I don't become the she-boss of the world? Am I ever going to be somebody? And what happens then is this idea gets implanted in our heads and here's how we then act. It can drive us to spend too much money on things we don't need to impress people we don't like, right? Who don't even like us back. It can drive us to eating disorders on either end of the spectrum, thinking I have to fit in. I have to, this deceptive idea through the commercial effect placed in your minds, it can drive us to this need to be just sexually active and sexually attractive because that's how I'll be somebody. See, what does Satan do? He doesn't get you to go out and do those things, but the ideas, the minds have been planted in our heads. From where? Powers of principalities, gatekeepers of our culture and society, implanting these things into our culture of what it means to look successful, to look good, to feel important. Scripture is going to redefine all of that for us, and I'm not going to be able to do it today. But we need to understand that's, that's what happens. See, what the devil does, what the devil does is he aims just to get a hold of your flesh, what's already inside of you, and put a little wind in your sail tell you all sorts of lies about yourself. And all of this is intertwined. What is a lie? 
A lie is something that does not correspond to reality. They present a false reality. That's what a lie does, a made-up reality. So in order to really process this and look at this, we can think through the Genesis story a little bit, which is what we'll do here this morning and how we'll close out. But I want to make you aware of how the enemy wants to present lies to you in order to distort your life to break you down and to tear you apart. Uh, this is not my ingenuity. This comes from, um, actually, he was my youth pastor way back in the day, but John Mark Comer, if you're familiar with him, he just wrote a book on truth and lies. It's fantastic. I'm about midway through it. And he talks about the schemes and the systems and the ways of the devil. And in it, what he says is, the devil is going to give you a deceptive idea about the good life and how you can get it. He's then going to allow for these disordered desires to arise, desires that aren't necessarily bad, but he upends them, turns them on their heads, and they're disordered in our lives, life gets out of whack. Then they become normalized and become an actual part of our society. Okay? This is what happens in culture. This is what happened in the sexual revolution, taking something good that God gave humanity, making it the ultimate, perverting it, then normalizing it to where there's a strip club on every corner in certain towns and cities. And that's just the way culture is today. We've just normalized it and accepted it, and it's the way that we ought to have. These deceptive ideas that he implants in humanity is essentially, you can be God yourself choosing right or wrong. So he said to Adam and Eve, you don't need to wait for God's permission. You don't need to wait for what he determines you should or shouldn't do. You can make those decisions on your own. And where he comes at people is in the big three lies of life. Who is God? I don't care who you are. If you believe in Jesus, don't believe in Jesus, or believe in 50 million Jesuses. Okay? Like everybody is their own God. We're all finding our own spirituality. Okay? Everybody's asking the question, who is God? Theology. And with that, is he good? I don't want to know God if he's not good. I don't want to get near God if he's not good. Then we're all asking the question, who am I? That is anthropology, humanity. Who are humans? Identity of the individual. Then, number three, we ask, what is the good life? That is morality. What is the good life? How do I get the good life? How does this all shake down and make sense? And so when we go through this progress, we say, who is God? Can I trust him? The devil says, he withholds good things from you. He whispers that in your ears today. You know that thing you've been desiring for 10 years? He's withholding it. There's better ways to get it. There's instant gratification. You don't need God to be happy. Go around him. And it creates division and misery in humans' lives. Who are we? What does it mean to be human? What separates us from just being an animal? Are we something more? Are we just part of this somehow ordered cosmos in this crazy world? Scripture begins to answer anthropology, you are a creature created in the image of God. It means you have purpose. He has a plan. And he wants to know you and you are knowable and so is God. And that final question that we are constantly asking ourselves, 
How do I get or what even is the good life? And the devil says, you can get it on your own. Just trust yourself. God says, I have a way in which the order of this world has been ordained. And I'm calling you to walk in it in relationship with me. Now, what we need to know in all of this is morality is based on anthropology, is based on theology. And what that means is if there is a creator, there is a design. If there's a design, that means there's intent for each and every one of you. So if you just kind of go back a little bit and you think about that commercial effect and you think, how can I ever be somebody or something if I don't look like, act like those people? Well, if there's a creator and there's design, if there's design and there's intent, that means there's even intent for you here this morning, humanity. If there's intent, there is morality. There's a way in which we ought to live. If there's morality, there is accountability. But if there is no creator, there is no design, there is no intent, just survival of the fittest. If there is no morality, who are you to say what is right or wrong today? There is no then accountability. Who are you to tell me or anybody else what they should or shouldn't do with their bodies, with their sexuality, with their money? Shoot, doesn't that just feel like where we are as a culture right now? Utter chaos. God wants to do is reorder that chaos. And this is what God's so good at. He takes chaos and he brings it to life. He brings it to order. And he's beginning it personally in your lives. I want to restore what's wrong and I want to make it right today. I want to work in and through you. However, when we invert that, the outcome are wars, trampling over one another, murder, slandering, kinds of evils and atrocities, become a confused culture sexually, become a confused culture with morality, and there's an emptiness that happens. I got to tell you something, church, and this is where I probably have my final, final beef, and maybe I've been a little over the boards, but I'm just passionate about some of this stuff. One of the things the church has done, probably in the last 30 years, is we have been so busy being divisive, squabbling and arguing. Some of the stuff, like, like yeah, that's, that's important internally, like atonement theories, substitution. Some of the stuff is just absolutely ridiculous. But we've lost our footing in culture, and we handed over the keys to media. I want you to hear this. Today, who tells you what is right or wrong? Dude, the church is terrified to do that. You know that? The church is terrified to make statements like, we can love everybody, but we can disagree that marriage is between a man and a woman. Like, like I, I, I have to say, no, marriage is a man and a woman, and yet I can get fired, picketed, tweeted, torn apart for believing in a Christian, a Judeo-Christian sexual ethic. Why? Because the church went ahead and said this, we got all of our own little problems over here. We're going to squabble, we're going to fight, we're going to argue. And even within the local church context, we're going to have problems with our split up of ages with kids or what color the carpet is or what, whatever. And all the while what the church has done is they said, we're going to go ahead and give media the power to tell us what is right or wrong. CNN's going to tell you something. Fox is going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. They're all over the boards, both of them. 
We've handed the keys over to the wrong people. They're not going to get it right. One of the things that I believe the church needs to be called to do, and maybe even, a, I would hope, a quote-unquote prophetic moment, is to wrestle back, to be a resistance. Star Wars words. To be a resistance. To be a minority of what it means to stand for truth and not live in lies. We have been deceived, and the devil is good at it. And he's caused so much division and so much problems, especially in the last two years. All kinds of misinformation tactics to get our minds, to get our hearts off of what truly, truly matters. This enemy is predictable. He comes at us with the same three things. He wants to isolate you so you speak these lies to yourself and then you live out of a wrong identity. He wants to play on your insecurities. He wants to play on what's already wrong within you. And then he wants to then exploit it. There needs to be personal stances made today. There needs to be corporate stances today as a people where we go, you know what, we're going to get on the same page with this stuff. And we're going to be the most loving, outgoing, generous, kind, accepting, tolerant kind of people who still have a firm footing and foundation for truth and are able to stand on that truth because we know it's what God has said and we don't want to invert or pervert it. So how are we going to combat the systems and the ways of the devil? The question is, are you going to be a person who believes truth or are you going to be a person who believes lies? This is how you resist the devil. If you think about Eve, when she first rebelled, she turned against God in her mind, didn't she? Did God really say, oh, no, 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 God didn't really say that. Oh, okay, I agree with you in that. If we first turned away from God in our thoughts, we need to turn back to God with our thoughts as a people. Romans 12 says we need to be renewed in our minds. This change that happens. Don't be conformed, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. To resist the devil, then, is to not buy into the lies personally to what he's telling you today. Has he whispered this week, you're not good enough? Did you do something kind of bad this week? And you've lived in shame all week of how could God actually love me? This week, did you think about your past from 30 years ago when you used to go out and just see how many people you could beat up or sleep with or rip off or wrong? And you begin to go, man, I'm just pathetic, worthless, and so unlovely. I need you to turn back to God in your mind because he says, no, you are a child of God. You've been transformed You have been changed. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are lovely. You are part of a community. You are in this family of God. You are accepted. You are welcomed. That is what God has said to you. So stop believing the lies. Right? Turn to God in your mind who you actually are when he wants to accuse you. Don't go back to those prisons. Transformation, church begins here. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're with us, that you love us, that you care for us. And we as a people right now just want to say we recognize there is a real enemy out there. And I think he wants to do great harm to people in here. And we ask that you protect us, build walls around us, 
And may we be in community that encourages us and reminds us who we are in Jesus. May we sing songs about who we are in Jesus, what you've done for us. May we celebrate even today communion, being told once again who we are in Christ and what you did for us, that you love us. And may we not believe the lies of the enemy. May we not be deceived. And may we walk in the beauty and the light that is Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, if you'd stand with me, we're gonna sing a song here. And during the song, the communion tables are open. When we come to the tables, we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us, that he loves us, that he cares for us, that you are lovely, that you are accepted, that you are welcome to come to the tables. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to grab communion, offering box to give to what God is doing here in this church. We'll take communion after this first song together corporately. And we'll sing another song and close out. But I think that some of us in here need to speak some truth to our lives now. And the scriptures tell you who you are. We need to sing truth to ourselves. Listen, we need to speak truth over our neighbors. We need to remind one another who we are in Jesus, how he loves us and has called us and made us his own. Let's worship him.